Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. For while I have fingers to grasp a sword and eyes to see, your treacherous head is not safe on your shoulders, nor your daughter in her bed. That, uh, Dominic Sandbrook, was Genghis Khan, as played by John Wayne. Tom, <laughs> Tom you definitely <laughs> haven't had a stroke. <laughs> no, I was. I thought that was... Yet another masterly impression. Um, as I said, John Wayne uh, playing Genghis Khan, the role he was born to play in the 1956 film The Conqueror. Um, have, have you seen it? I haven't actually, Tom. I haven't done And, and after that imper- impersonation, I don't <laughs> think I ever will. Um, it's, it's basically a Western. That's not how I imagined Genghis Khan sounding at all, let's be frank. No, uh, and I don't really imagine him looking like John Wayne either. No, no, that's um, true. So I don't so know that's... who to blame there, the producers or you. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, as the listeners will probably have guessed, our, our theme today is uh, Genghis Khan, or is that the correct way to pronounce it? Um, do you know what we need, Dominic, to advise us on this? I do, but before we before we bring our expert in, Tom, I will just say this. We in The Rest is History are not a podcast that does random shout-outs to um, schools across England. That is absolutely not our sort of modus operandi. However, if that school happens to be J.R.R. Tolkien's alma mater, and also the alma mater of our producer, Jack Davenport, then we take a very different line, don't we, Tom? We might make an exception with that. So this is a shout out to the uh, the pupils at King Edward's Birmingham, Tom, who it turns out are great fans of the rest is history and are intending to listen to this episode in their classrooms. Oh, that's wonderful. wonderful which all think. children, I think nationwide, should be doing, frankly. Yes, um, yes. Uh, but I hope also that um, maybe there are some, I, I imagine they do drama at yeah. King Edward's Birmingham. So maybe uh, they will, yes. maybe that masterly opening yeah. will encourage some thespians to And I also have high boards. hopes that this episode will play in schools across Mongolia as people get in touch with their, their I don't think they're woke about their history there. So I think they absolutely will embrace well, um, the spirit of this podcast. But not just and, Mongolia, the whole of Eurasia. Well, that's because the thing, that, of course, it? is our yeah. theme, isn't it? Genghis, it is. Genghis Khan, the greatest conqueror of all time. Discuss. So, so we were going to bring in an expert, weren't we? And do you have such a person? I do. And he's very much a friend of the show. In fact, Dominic, he's the only person who has stepped into your shoes when you, you <laughs> malingered <laughs> yeah, with COVID. With COVID. <laughs> we welcomed to, to, to the show, uh, not just... He, so he'd previously been a guest. He talked did that brilliant episode on Persia. Then he stepped into... Uh, co-host with me, the top 10 mistresses in history. And now he's back. It's the one and only Professor Ali Ansari, St. Andrews University. Ali, welcome back. It's Thank you. And it's really, it's really good to be back. Central Asian warlords I have known. (laughs) (laughs) So Ali, Genghis Khan, not not the correct pronunciation, right? It isn't. It isn't actually. Well, as far as we can tell, because uh, actually the more uh, accurate uh, pronunciation or rendition seems to be, and I dare say, among Persian historians of the Mongol period, and it's actually Chengiz. It's a ch rather than a g, so it's uh, people tend to uh, agree that basically they have the the nearest pronunciation or the, the Persians did. Pronunciation. Yes, because so they, you're saying the Persians pronounced it better than the Mongols. Yeah, Persian historians are really the ones that uh, we can't do without. 
because uh, a number of Persian historians, and one of them in particular, who I'll be quoting uh, pretty liberally throughout here, was one of the ones who actually went to Karakoram and actually looked at the secret history and, and was actually invited to write a sort of a... An so tell us about the secret history, because we should probably discuss the... Sort, I mean, uh, Tom, what a, we're not a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> We should have a chapter on sources to start the podcast. So you're going to be you're going to be citing Persian sources, but the secret. I mean, the secret history is great, isn't it? Because that's the, the secret Mongolian history is source. great, but the only the the only um, accounts we have, or the only sort of yeah, the only versions we have left are actually taken from Chinese chronicles. So the Chinese basically translated it. It's in the Chinese sort of chronicles, and then it's been retranslated back. The other the other sources we have for the secret history are basically a number of Persian historians, particularly this gentleman known as Juvani, who travelled to Karakoram and actually is claimed to have seen it. So what we can do is compare these two different sources and see what they tell us about the early life of, uh, of Genghis Khan. And, you know, there's a sort of a, you know, they, they, they sort of, uh, uh, they echo each other. So just a couple of things, Ali, before we get started. Sure. So first of all, we are in, for those people who don't know, uh, we are in the sort of the, the medieval period. Yes. We kick off in the 12th century and he dies in the 13th century. That's and right. here's the person who's the architect, the initial, the founding father of this kind of huge period of Mongol expansion, I guess. That's right. Um, the most sort of rapid expansion, it, probably in human history. Now, the second thing I was going to say is, you, you talked about his name, Genghis, but but that's not his original name, right? No, no, that's I mean, a title. It's an honorific. Yeah, it's yes. an honorific. And you read various, uh, you read, I mean, I, I was always taught, I have to say, and I'm going to stick with this, that Genghis Khan actually means Lord of all those who dwell, dwell in felt tents. Uh, so this is an honorific that he gets in 1206 when he basically brings the Mongol confederation, the tribes together and begins the, uh, begins the jolly of, you know, heading down into yeah. what is now China. And, and just to be clear, his surname is not Khan. So no, no, not at all. Him. Again, Lord, that's Lord. <laughs> yeah, Lord. Yeah. And I, I, it is one of the great banes, yes, that a lot of people tend to use Khan because Khan is also a term that's used in uh, Persian quite frequently just to mean Mr. These days it's sort of slightly been diminished uh, right. over the time. Uh, there's a lot of words that come in and seep in. Uh, but in those days, obviously, it means Lord. But his, his real name is Temujin. Temujin, blacksmith. So he's Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, before, he become, before he becomes Khan, <laughs> he's, Smith. Mr. he's Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith. Yeah, it's a fairly... I mean, the interesting thing about his rise, by the way, is that uh, quite apart from the fact that, you know, what we know comes from essentially one source, uh, and it's pretty vague and it's quite speculative, uh, but it's not smooth is what the... I mean, you look at... So, so you would imagine the secret history is on the whole quite eulogistic. It obviously says, you know, what a splendid chap he was and, uh, you know, how he outmaneuvered all his foes. But it has to be said that he had some. He had a pretty rough time growing up. I mean, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't all easy. So, so Ali, before we before we come to Genghis Khan himself, just the the, the background. So, the secret history mm. says about the Mongols that they are descended from a, a deer and a blue grey wolf. Yes, that there's a long line of descent. That at some point there's a mysterious glowing man who appears <laughs> through a tent. <laughs> Um, and he contributes to the, the the bloodline of the Mongols. But they are basically, when Temujin is born into them, they're, they're a fairly insignificant tribe on um, the Mongolian steppes. Well, basically, I mean, the Mongols, yeah, there they're are they're a number of different tribes. I mean, basically on the, you know, what we consider to be the outer hinterland of the Chinese sort of uh, uh, imperium. Uh, what is now basically, I suppose, you know, Mongolia and that sort of outer areas of Siberia, and they uh, there are a number of different tribes who 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 are basically can you know uh, designated as a part of a sort of a Mongol confederation. I don't think you can devise them as one people. I mean, this is the interesting thing: is that right. what what Temujin does 
is he basically welds them into a single into a single group. He's not the first person to do it. I mean, there have been threats before, and the Chinese deal with them in various ways, either through bribery or defeats and this sort of thing. What what actually Temujin does, aka Genghis Khan, is basically not only wield them into a a, a hole, if I can put it that way, but then ensure they have someone else to fight. I mean, that's that's the other thing. So he directs them elsewhere, and and that keeps them all unita- unified. Just before we start on his on Temujin's actual career, sure. the, the context for this. So you said that these are tribes mm. who are nomadic. They yes. live beyond the, the, the bounds yeah. of the Chinese Empire. So the Great Wall is basically yeah. you know, the various incarnations of the Great Wall. Various to keep them out. It, yeah. It's not quite. Yeah. And they, belo- they belong to the, the steps. Yes. Which are obviously not you know, things that you go up if the lift's not working. They are <laughs> well, thanks huge, plains. great plains. <laughs> great plains. Gra- yes. Great grass They're plains. kind of grasslands, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. And they basically, they extend from the Pacific right the way up to Hungary. Yes. So this is the key thing to understand, isn't it? For the rise of the Mongols. I mean, in Mongols, e- ecological terms, that- yes. I mean, because basically what the, they're nomads, uh, they're on horseback, although we can discuss also the nature of their horses, by the way, they're not quite, you know, they're more ponies actually, but uh, nonetheless, you know, they, they need a particular environment in which to exist. So that is where they're, they're more most effective. And if you look at the expansion of the empire later, there is a sort of a slight correlation, obviously, about, you know, where the step ends and where they sort of stop expanding, basically. And, and Ali, history is littered with examples, isn't it, already? By the time that uh, when Temujin is born, there mm. have been tons of, I mean, the Avars, the Huns. Yes. There have been all these the people Huns who have swept, you know, famously. The Pechenegs. The Pechenegs, friends Pechenegs. of the show. Uh, the Cubans, <laughs> the, yeah. all these kind of characters. They've sw- I mean, that that trajectory. The, mm. So the, the story that we always tell about the Mongols and and. and I mean, I can't. I can't help thinking of him as Genghis Khan. Yeah, um, sure. The, 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 the way that they, the story is, you know, the storm from the east come out of yeah. nowhere, all that. Yeah. But they don't really come out of nowhere because, I mean, this has been done a billion times before. Is it always? Am I wrong about that? No, no, it has been done. I think it hasn't been done quite on the scale that it's it's it's, right. it's done on this occasion. That's the difference. And certainly, I mean, the the interesting thing is the Chinese or the various you know Chinese authorities that we're dealing with. Those China, as we know at this stage, is separated into separate kingdoms, but they they have a they have a particular modus operandi of dealing with these steppe tribesmen. I mean, and it's it's pretty effective to be honest. That's the way they deal with it. And it's the same when you look at the Persian heartlands. They have a particular way of dealing with these sort of tribal hinterlands. The difference is is that what um, Genghis Khan does is is effectively transform this tribal confederation into you know sp- yeah. you know the, the most effective fighting force that i think people have people have actually experienced and it is a shock i mean it's a major shock to the system although as we'll see you know he learns on the way i mean he does right. he's, he's he's very innovative actually okay so so he is he is born supposedly clutching a, a blood clot yeah a good bit of secret history there. yes <laughs> <laughs> which demonstrates that he is going to inherit universal yes, rule apparently that's right i gather I can't um, believe that's a post facto uh, invention, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and he's the son of a guy called Yusagei, is that yes. right? Um, who uh, is, uh, who's captured um, a, a Tartar chief or killed a Tartar chief called Temujin. And when you, ki- when you kill someone, when you capture you someone, you take over yeah, everything. Yeah. So you yeah. take all their possessions, all their belongings, all their women, everything and their name. So yeah. it, it, that's right. So he grows up and, his his father is quite a significant figure. He's a tribal well, leader. I mean, or tri- yeah, relatively. I mean, I wouldn't say. I mean, it depends what you mean by significant. I mean, he's he's obviously a sort of a clan. You know, a clan. Sort he's of got people. To, he's to got order. people around. He's him. got yeah, yeah. at his back. But the sort of world, just to interrupt, the world that he lives in. They live in tents. 
Yeah, yeah. It's all no matter. I live in uh, a gur. <laughs> Say that again, it, please, Tom. I thought a it was a yurt, but anyway, yes. <laughs> no, yeah, I thought it was a yurt. <laughs> they have it at the Edinburgh Literary Festival. They have a gur. <laughs> Okay, they, I don't think they... I've never heard anyone pronounce it yeah, like that. Well, that's, that's what they say. They say, welcome to the Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh Little Festival. Do come into our girl. I think that's oh. just your misinterpreting the Scottish accent. Um, <laughs> could, anyway, be. listen, they, they live in these tents and they move around. They're nomadic. Yeah, yeah, they move around. I mean, it is, it is nomadic. These are not... And, and this is crucial, actually, when it comes to their attitudes to cities, which I know we will t- be talking a little bit about their ecological uh, attitudes. Uh, they don't like cities and they think people who live in cities are decadent. So and they don't like peasants, that's do they? They don't mm-hmm. like they don't like peasants, farmers. I mean, they kind of well, they just them as yeah, well. they 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 think that the the only people they do like, interestingly, as you go on, are artisans, people who can actually do something for them. Yeah, right. So they do save them. I mean, again, that's one of the things that's quite striking. They will slaughter a city, but keep the artisans. And Ali, I, I was intrigued to learn actors. Actors. Apparently, there was oh, there were two rebel cities, and they they spared the masons and the carpenters and the actors. That's so you, with your John Wayne, I'd be fine. <laughs> on I'd be fine, and I hope that the uh, the, the students. By the way, I should Saint point out there is a, as well. There is a better film by the Mongols. There There's is a better a, film by Omar Sharif. Just in case anyone was listening. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now, and then uh, when we're back, let's talk about Temujin, the early years. See you in a sec. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. And now, Dominic, where are we up to in the life of Temujin? Temujin, he grows up. They have an arranged marriage. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, he's, I think Borte is his, his Borte, and yeah. Played by Susan Hayward. In- okay. 
get off the film. Um, he is, he is, he's what, nine years old when he's sent yes. off to her. But he's sent off in preparation for the marriage, basically. So right. then when he's get, reaches puberty, then he gets married. And so off he goes. And in the meantime, his father is poisoned by the he's poisoned. He's poisoned. Yeah. Again, bear in mind, this is all secret history stuff. We have no idea whether any of this is true, but there's no right. reason not to believe and, and it. I mean, just if it isn't true, is it is it conforming possibly to some formula, some expected formula of a kind of There is. Life? I mean, there are some tropes there. I mean, what, one of the things I found in the secret history, which is quite interesting, is that he's always got a very reverential attitude to his mother. I mean, right. and, and you, you know, you have to sort of think about that. You know, why is the world conquering Genghis Khan so fearful of his mother? There's a trope. I mean, like it's Nero, this idea Tom. that <laughs> he's basically, well, you know, he, he has a... Uh, or Ted Heath. <laughs> yes so there are there the are great conquerors there. of history <laughs> yes yeah, so, so he's been paired up with with his future wife burte yeah. and also his childhood friend jamaka yes who becomes his blood brother and so that's a that's another key figure yes, so these are absolutely. two key figures um and then as he gets older basically it's a succession of peoples who piss him off yes so the first people that dominic just mentioned are the tatars who um they host his father, they give him food, but they've poisoned it and he yeah. dies several days later. And Genghis Khan comes back to take over uh, from his dad's position and the Mongols say, go away, we're not interested in yeah. you. Yeah. Now that's yeah. interesting. Why do that's you think right. they would reject him? Because he's been away and he's... He's been away, he's probably too young, he's not seen as someone who can really sort of carry the can in a sense. So, I mean, you know, essentially it's it's a power play, isn't it? I mean, you, you've got to, I suppose, look at it in terms of tribal politics, which is sort of fairly common that, you know, he would he's not someone who either they particularly knew or cared for. Uh, um, that's the argument. But of course, it also fits the narrative of his very, you know, his struggle, actually, the struggle to achieve his, you know, his destiny. I mean, you know, you can see various novels coming out of that, but that's the, you know. That's it is the, like a novel. I mean, it, it really is, is yeah. like a novel. It's, um, you know, the archetype of myth. I mean, well, if you think about the, the great hero say, who yeah. suffers and has yeah. to pull himself up He's born up with nothing. that clot of blood in his hand. So that's yeah. his destiny. He's constantly being, you know, uh, I don't know, disinherited, shall we say. He's not, but he fights hard. And and it is, you know, I mean, it, it is a hell of a fight. I mean, it's, it's and, and there are periods in his early existence where we just absolutely don't know what happens to him. There's, there's, a, there's a sort of 10 year gap in the secret history. We just don't know where, where he is. Well, once they reject him, they plunge him into poverty, don't they? Doesn't he live yeah. on kind of nuts and roots? Or he lives something? on marmots. And that's something that the listeners should bear in mind because marmots may well play a part later in the show. He's living on yeah. marmots and, and roots. Um, he has a bust up with his half elder half-brother, Bector, who he kills. So the evidence is stacking up. This is a guy you don't want to cross. Um, and then he gets captured by, am I pronouncing this right? The Teuchid. <laughs> I would say the teachers. But anyway, the, the well, Mongolian the, listeners, well, please write in and let us know. <laughs> I know yeah, the, <laughs> the, the leader of this of this of this people is the is is called Kirill Tuk, and right. he is known as the Fat Man, right. obviously in Mongolian. In Mongolian, yeah. uh, but uh, so he's he's kind of fatty. Um, he's very large, and he is the guy who puts um, Ching, uh, Timogen in a kind of portable stocks, so he becomes a kind of slave, um, and. It's wearing the stocks, that brilliant passage that I read at the top of the show. Um, oh, is that what that was? Oh, is that yeah. John Wayne? Oh, okay. That's yeah. John Wayne. And that impenetrable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but he escapes, doesn't he? So that's a, a kind of dramatic moment. I mean, the two, the two striking things of his, early, uh, of his early life, really, are one that his wife gets kidnapped. And, and right, and so that's the third people who piss him off. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we've had the Tatars, we've had the Techiud. 
or whatever, however you pronounce yeah. them. And then the three meerkits. Yeah, the meerkits. It's the one of the tribes that <laughs> really impossible. has a, yeah. Apparently means the wise ones, but it's impossible. There's been an awful think lot of, of them. There's been an awful lot of wife stealing with them. It's, yeah, yeah. There? Well, it's all about it's all about humiliation, and it's all about you know possession. And, and of course, you know one of the things that happens is every time you uh, defeat a, a, a rival sort of clan, let's call them clans rather than tribes, uh, yeah. you acquire a wife. So yeah. you know it's part of that, from that marriage clan. alliance. Yeah, yeah. So you, you build that. It's a it's a kinship alliance. So he he has an awful lot of eventually an awful lot of wives. But but Bilka has been kidnapped by the fat man. Yeah, uh, and so he he needs allies. So obviously he turns to his blood brother. Yeah, uh, Jamuka. 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 Jamuka, sorry, Jamuka. But also he um Togrel. he turns to a guy Togrel. called Togrel, who is and do Dom, Dominic, do you know what what Togrel is known as? The thin man. Um, no, <laughs> no. This is very exciting for um, for members of the of the Discord, uh, where who's we've called them Wangs ever since the um, the General Gordon episode. Yeah, Togrel was known as the Wang Khan, the Wang, the Khan. Wang Khan. Yeah, so that's the, that's that. that's the king leader. I think of you as a Wang Khan, Tom. That's great, isn't it? I think we're the Wang Khans. Um, anyway, right. Let's. Um... So Jamaica Wang Khan, the Wang Khan, and Timogen get yeah. him back. Get get Burka back. And basically, Timogen by now he's he's shown Berta. kind of charisma. Yeah, Berta. Sorry, Berta. He's he's <laughs> he's showing charisma. He's showing an ability to lead. He's showing an ability to kill uh, his enemies, to steal their wives, take their horses. He is no. I mean, he has now. The the interesting thing about himself and Jamuka, who are the the two the, the, the rivals in this, is actually in in a contest. You know, when they fall out, which is inevitably they always do. Obviously, when they fall out, uh, Jamuka actually defeats. Temujin, and and this is the period when he's 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 down and out, so to speak. But Jamuka, uh, interestingly enough, and you won't be surprised by this, uh, doesn't actually win friends and influence people by taking, um, you know, of his rivals, boiling seventy of them alive. Apparently, so and by boiling <laughs> seventy of them alive, uh, people sort of think, oh, this this guy's even a bit too savage for us. So that basically gives another opening to Temujin, basically to come back against Jamuka. I mean, it's it's that dynamic in a sense that Jamuka is is almost, I mean, this is quite interesting, is almost saying to Temujin that you're a bit too soft. You know? Right. You, so Temujin is the kind of, he's the centrist. He's the liberal yeah. democrat. Yeah. Of the I mean, in leaders. a sense, Temujin is saying, you know, you've got to win friends and influence people, build a, a sort of a network. Jamuka's saying, you know, no, this is all namby-pamby stuff. You know, you, when you defeat your foes, you do it. And again, it's it's interesting that when Temujin, you know, when, when Temujin and Jamuka basically split and a number of people betray Jamuka and basically move to Temujin's side, Temujin doesn't like that. I mean, he basically says, you know, you have betrayed your lord and and I'm not having right. anyone who's disloyal, you know, well, with me. So he actually has them executed as well. I mean, it's it's quite interesting how he develops a very clear sense of, you know, a loyalty network. And that's really quite distinctive about him. I mean, and the contrast with Jamuka is, is interesting. In that One respect. question, Ali, before we press on with the narrative. So there's, there's quite a, um, it's quite odd, I would say, that Temujin has been He's been very poor and he's been living on these marmots and, and nuts and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But he's nevertheless able to raise an army of thousands of men to defeat his enemies, you know, almost sort of out of nowhere. Now, is that because they respect his bloodline or is it 
or, or is there something that we're not being told in the source? Well, or? I think there's. I think there's something we're not being told in the sources. I mean, obviously they're they're, they're playing up his his weakness because it adds to the dramatic narrative of his his reemergence. But I think it's also his bloodline, his charisma, and his ability to win the loyalty of people. If you look at some of the accounts, I mean, albeit of course the later accounts, even the Persian accounts, they sort of argue that you know he has a he has. A political mastery. I mean, he he, right. he knows how to win people over, and they compare him, you know, with actually with Alexander and people like you know. They sort of say he is the new, you know, very much Kusra, the, the, the new Alexander, the new this. Yeah. yeah, we don't want to talk too much about Alexander because you know, obviously, he's not a favourite of mine. But no. you know, no. it's uh, um, yeah. you, you should know, read. You should read a brilliant book, <laughs> Ali. That would change your I mind have. completely. I have. I want you to know <laughs> that I have. But, Ali, yeah. but Ali, yeah. is, is it not also? I mean, does, isn't it also a reflection of the fact that um, the tribes are very potentially very that they split apart that yes. they congeal again and so therefore if you have I, I mean essentially if you snooze you lose but, but equally there's potential there if you're very charismatic and yes. skillful for you to yes. rise from absolutely nowhere that's right you know if you start to, to gather a few people around you then exponentially you'll start to get more and more and yeah. If you can keep going, if you can absolutely, I mean, it's kind of like a computer game. If you can get to level 36, <laughs> then you've got all the tribes underneath you. Well, I mean, the key element here is also this notion of blood brother, by the way. I mean, so what he does pre previously, previous sort of like Jamuka and others, focus very, very much on the sort of kinship ties of their various clans and tribes and so on and so forth. What Temujin does actually is he brings different groups together and he creates blood brothers. And, you know, the, he almost invents relationships. So people say that, you know, the, the, one of the secrets of his, of his success is not to spend too much time thinking about uh, kinship, you know, uh, loyalties. It's about, yeah, I mean, they, they use the term meritocracy. I think that's it's a bit much. But nonetheless, he's promoting people or bringing people towards him on the basis of what they can do and their abilities. And, of course, what that means is that you're naturally, you know, if, if people think that, by siding with Temujin, you're certainly not going to be boiled in a vat of water or whatever, mm-hmm. or a vat of oil. For you know, uh, th- there's an attraction to you know, there's some benefit to that, and, th- and then he can turn their loyalty to other to other uses. So he's you're quite right about sort of building that momentum, and he keeps that momentum up by by building different links. So what what you find is also in the military organization that he builds, which is based on a sort of a decimal system, by the way. I mean, it's very sort of he he essentially creates new groupings. You know, he he brings people together. How do you mean, and, based on a decimal? So system? basically, uh, the the standard Mongol military unit is the ten thousand, the Tuman, which is another term that is very current in modern Persian, has to be said. The Tuman is ten thousand soldiers, but it goes from ten to a hundred to a thousand. Hazara, the Hazaras in Afghanistan, right? The Hazaras, um, the thousand, and they they are designated in this. You know, they're they're, they're organized in these groups, um, and often old tribal loyalties are ignored in this. You see, they're brought together in different. Right. You see what I mean? I have a question sure. about that. So that you know who that reminds me of that we've done in the show is Mohammed. Alexander. No, no it's Mohammed. Oh. So, so he takes uh, a people yeah. that have previously Tribes. been feuding yes. tribal loyalties, and he forges something new. Yeah. Um, he's a great political innovator. Yeah. Is that the same? Do you think there is a, a sort of slight parallel? There have there? been, yeah. I mean, there is a similar, there is a, a similarity there. And of course, the, I mean, the, the other thing is to bear in mind that the Mongols, far from being, you know, there is an argument whether they're purely shamanistic or, you know, and, and, and sort of, actually there is this sort of idea of the great sky god Tengri. So right. it's this notion that they do have some sort of spiritual belief. It's not quite as, I mean, 
I know people then say oh, the Mongols are very liberal when it comes to religions. It's not that they're liberal. They don't care. I mean, that, that's mainly they, they don't give a hoot, you know, who you, right. you believe in as long as you pay your taxes. So that, that's the difference, really. But there is there is a sort of a there is a spiritual element to it. Right. Not the Christian, question, you'll be pleased to know. Very yet, pleased to yeah, hear that. Yeah. I'm glad that we can put yeah. that out of this podcast completely. <laughs> now, the second thing I was going to say was, so when Muhammad and, you know, the, the Arab conquest happened, yeah. I mean, one reason that historians say for that is they say, well, it's partly because the neighbors are weak, but it's also because there's been all kinds of kind of technological and political crossover from their neighbors to prepare the ground before that. Yeah. Is that also happening in the world that Tem- young Temujin is growing up? So are they getting lots of new stuff from China or other lots of contacts that weren't there before or, or are they, or is it a kind of unchanging world? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question because actually one of the things that the Mongols are bad at to begin with is siege warfare. So when they start their conquest of China, they're not actually very good at taking cities. <laughs> to be honest. Right. It's only after their diversion into the Islamic lands, the Khwarezm Shah, you know, the, 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 what is now in, in Persia, that they then collect all these artisan and siege workers and then go back to China. I mean, they do sack certainty, but their conquest of China becomes somewhat more systematic once they pick up all the sort of siege uh, capability. So it is interesting that, that initially they're not very good, you know, right. at dealing with... Uh, Ali, is it not the case? I mean, they have the composite bow, which yes. is absolutely devastating weapon. Yes. I mean, it, it fires arrows faster and more to more lethal effect than say the longbow yes it's uh, and you can fire it from a horse and yes. they grow up and, and that makes them an absolutely lethal force it's a mo- mobile but there, the, but yeah. there is there is the argument isn't there that um Genghis khan launches his campaigns basically just in the nick of time because it's just before the arrival of gunpowder oh yes yes absolutely so yes yes you know another a few more decades yes they wouldn't have been able to do it because gunpowder would have put paid to them Although, I mean, of course, you know, the composite bow is probably a much more effective weapon than the early musket. I mean, it's just a question of, it's just a question of who can use it. Uh, to, be a, to, to be able to use the composite bow on horseback requires years of training, obviously, uh, which yeah. you don't need if you're using the musket. So that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the gunpowder empires really put an end to the nomad, you know. The, the, but those the first muskets, as you say, Ali, I mean, they're more likely to go off in your face, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. To, you know, I mean, so the, I suppose you know, it's Chinese got a tiny bit longer but, than... And the Mongols from- use it. I mean, they do use gunpowder. Yeah, they do. They do, don't they? Partly for show, but yeah. Well, they're the first to use it in Europe, um, I gather. Uh, Anyway, so I think I think um, let's let's just finish the account of how um, Temujin becomes Chinggis Khan. Right. So we've been talking about Jamuka. Yeah. This blood brother who's turned into his kind of enemy uh, and who boils people alive. Yeah. Um, They have a final bust up, don't they? Yeah. and the Wang Khan is also involved in that. The Wang Khan has also turned against Temujin. Yeah. He gets defeated by Temujin and then Jamuka um, gets handed over by his own men. Basically. That's right. Am I right that Temujin basically says, because you're my blood brother, I will spare you. Yes. yes. And Jamuka says, no, kill me. Well, he says there, is no, there, there, there isn't room for two suns in the sky. Yeah, know, that's so right. Yeah. We're not going to have this. Um, but again, it's interesting. The, the, you know, the point you make there is, again, quite interesting and a bit of an insight into Temujin's charisma, in a sense, that, he, that Jamuka's own men hand him over. I mean, it's quite, yeah. you know, they decide we know, we know who's on the up here. Um, so again, his political skills, isn't it, yes, rather than just yes. martial prowess? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things we need to get away from is really this notion that the Mongols are purely military achievement. I mean, they're, they're quite politically savvy, actually, in what they do. Um, and so what he says, he says, you're my blood brother. I'd much rather sort of be with you. And whatever Jamuka says, absolutely, you know, there, there, there can't be uh, two suns in the sky. Uh, but he says, the only thing is, 
you know, uh, you know, execute me, but I don't shed my blood. I mean, this is the thing. So it, it, it's again, something that's quite common as we said, that you don't shed basically royal blood by shedding. Royal so how blood, do they it, kill him? So they put him on a, uh, I think they break his back on the, on a wheel. I mean, it's, it's a sort of a wheel Ooh. thing and they break his back. Yeah. That's not a good way to go. Um, and other ways of, I mean, the other ways that we'll Ooh. see later, if you see us, you know, obviously in, in the Middle East, there's one of the famous ones is wrapping the caliph up in the carpet and trampling Trump. him to death. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's to make, I mean, I'm not sure that means he doesn't bleed by the way, but <laughs> maybe you don't see it. It's not. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that 1206. Yeah. Uh, is, is killed. He's then declared. And- yeah. Genghis Khan, Lord of all who dwell in felt tents. And that's really the pivotal. He is now in charge of the Mongol Confederacy. He has this huge military potential. Uh, You know, he's politically top dog. Now, what most Chinese and other observers say is now's the time when they start fighting each other and it all dissipates. But not in this case, (laughs) basically. A coiled spring. Exactly. Right. I think we should um, leave it here for today. But we will be back tomorrow with Ali Ansari and uh, Genghis Chinggis Khan. We will launch the Mongol conquests and see what Genghis Chinggis does next. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.